0: anemic. A lot of believers are anemic spiritually. They can't figure out why does my spiritual life have no zip, no zest, no power, no joy. I think a lot of the time it's because we've gotten spiritually anemic. And I'm going to tell you, church, we need several touch points that, that take care of spiritual anemia. One of them is the Word. Another one I really do believe is seeking God hard in prayer seeking God regularly, and then fellowship. But a lot of believers are just anemic when it comes to the Word of God. We don't understand it. So this is why we're going through whole books on Wednesday nights to learn the Word of God. So let's stand and we're gonna read the first verse that we're dealing with tonight. This is the doom of false teachers continued. And let's read verse six together, can we? And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah Into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. So if this is what happens to the ungodly, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, do you want it? No. Father, thank you for your blessing, your word tonight. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And let's look at this now. These verses are so strong, so powerful. This is Simon Peter's second letter, and he's, um, he really sounds, as I've told you often, a whole lot like Jude. They really are very similar letters. Both are dealing with false teachers. And I really think one of the things that God wants us to get out of these two letters, Jude and 2 Peter, well, and 1 John for that matter, is that God cares about His Word. And he cares that it's taught the way it ought to be taught. And you know what? It matters to God how we understand his word. God's word matters to God. Because look what happens to people who twist it and skew it and lead others in a wrong direction. Now last week I talked to you about teachers have a responsibility to teach the word accurately, but you as God's people have a responsibility to choose what you listen to. You have a responsibility to choose what you listen to. Because what you put yourself under, the type of leadership, the type of teaching, is going to have a whole lot to do with your faith in the future. Tell me what you believe about God, and I'll tell you a lot about your future. And whatever you believe about God, you're getting a lot of it from who is teaching you. And so, Peter is making the point, man, if you're a false teacher, if you're misleading people, if you're skewing the word, teaching it wrong, and you as a listener are letting yourself be led astray, both will be dealt with by God. So now, look what happened to these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, turned into ashes. Turning into ashes is from a Greek word meaning to reduce to ashes, to consume, to destroy, literally to cover up with ashes. Rather than being reduced to ashes, he's talking about how these cities were covered up in ashes. Uh, It's like Pompeii was covered in ashes following the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Remember that? And now we've dug up those archaeological remains and there were people sitting in chairs and there were people laying on the street and there were people uh, looking like they had been trying to get away and they were all frozen in time because they were covered in ashes. And it was like, it was like that that moment, that eruption, just sort of freeze-framed time. And, and After they excavated and took all those ashes off of them, they saw what had happened. Same thing. These twin cities were covered up in ashes. And the Bible's clear God did it. It's clear God did it. Now, I don't rejoice in that, but I do know that our God is an awesome God. Our God is a mighty God. And He's not only a God of love, but, ladies and gentlemen, He's a God of judgment. And God is going to judge sin. And if we in America think that we're going to get away with sin as a nation, we are not. If God judged the Twin Cities, if he judged angels, if he judged the people of Noah's day, Peter's point is this. He will judge you, and he will judge me. Our God is an awesome God. He covered these cities up in ashes. And I want to point out, He delivered righteous Lot and his family. The righteous were called out and the judgment fell. Picture of the rapture. The church will be called out and the judgment will fall. Now the word overthrow in the Greek is catastrophe. Gee, what do you think we get from that? Meaning to throw down when God overthrew the twin cities it was a total catastrophe that's what the word is telling us when when God overthrew these cities it was a total catastrophe they became an example to ungodly persons of things in store for them so translation. Let's read it together, can we? And the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, having reduced to ashes, he condemned them to destruction, having constituted them as a permanent example to the ungodly of things about to come. Wow. Wow. All right. Verse 7. Can we read this together? And look what he did. And delivered righteous Lot, who was vexed by the filthy conversation of the wicked. Now every once in a while I'm going to pull out a Greek word. I'm going to show you the Greek word because I want you to get at least a little bit acclimated to what one looks like and how you sound it out and how you can break it up and sort of um, uh, get all the nectar out of it, all the meaning out of it. So the word vexed is the Greek word katapaneo. And now it's a compound word. You notice that I put the dash in between kata paneo means to tire down with toil to exhaust with labor we would just say to wear somebody out to afflict or to oppress with evils the first part of the word kata means down from and paneo is evil so literally what happened to lot as he was exposed to the righteous i mean the uh, wicked lifestyles of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, every single day, all day, 24-7, it literally, it, it, it wore him down from evil. He was worn down. It so vexed him, watching the activities, being exposed to the sin, having to resist that, that invasive evil in his own heart. That evil just wore him down. It just wore him out. The vile lives of the people of these two cities wore locked down as his soul rebelled against the filth he saw always around him. You know, I want to know: anybody ever feel that way now? Any of you ever feel that way? I mean, man, you turn on that TV, and it, the stuff that's on that TV now on regular networks—if they had put that stuff on 30 years ago, they'd all be in the clink, they'd all be in jail, they'd all be shut down. The FCC would have had a cow back then, but now we have been incrementally taken down that slippery slope of corruption to the level that we blink at what would have made us gasp before. And yet, if you get into the Word and you really walk with the Lord and you really get tight with Him, you find yourself surrounded by such evil sometimes that it has a way of just wearing you down. Just like Lot. He was vexed. Now, conversation doesn't mean talk. It means manner of life. So when it says he was vexed by the filthy conversation, it's not talking about their talk. Conversation means manner of life, the way they lived, the immorality of their lifestyles. That's what wore him down. The filthy lifestyles. Of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah just vexed him, wore him down, just wearied him in his righteous soul. Wicked is lawless, and is used of somebody who breaks through the restraint, <clears throat> the restraints of law, and gratifies his lusts. So when it says wicked, this is somebody who says, you know, I want what I want, and I'm living according to my lower nature. So I'm going to break through all godly restraints in order to pursue what I want to pursue. That's the wicked. They don't care about the Word of God. They don't honor the Scriptures. They don't honor God's moral code. They break through it. Filthy is unbridled lust, excess, wantonness, shamelessness. In verse 7, Peter is pointing to the behavior of the lawless ones in the sphere of unbridled lust. Their behavior was an endless vexation to righteous lot. I really believe, folks, that we're in that day again. And we're going to experience times when we're just worn out by the evil that's around us. But thank God, greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world because they didn't have what we have. We have the whole word of God. Thank God. Uh, we've got the Holy Ghost living inside of us. We've got the blood of Jesus to wash us from all our sin. We've got a better covenant. We've got a better way. We've got a better Christ. We've got a better mediator. We've got better, better, better than Lot had. But it's still vexing. Amen? So let's read the translation together. And righteous Lot completely worn down by the manner of life of the lawless in the sphere of unbridled lust, he delivered. Well, praise God. Do you think if he delivered Lot in the old covenant, he's going to deliver you and me in the new covenant? He came to him by by way of an angel and said, you need to get out of here. Judgment's about to fall. The angel grabbed him by the hand when he tarried, led him out and his whole family with him. And as soon as they were safe, the judgment fell. So shall it be for us, children of God. It's going to get so evil, so wicked. There will be days that the evil will vex you and wear you down. But one day, an angel is going to grab your hand and say, it's time to get out. It's time to get out. And we will be taken to glory. And as soon as we're safe, the judgment of the tribulation period is going to fall on this planet. These are types and shadows of what was to come. Now let's read verse 8, can we? For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, this one spoke to me more than almost anything I'm teaching tonight because I found something. First of all, let me just take the word dwelling. When he says dwelling among them, dwelling is from a word that means to live in a home, to settle down permanently. Sodom and Gomorrah was not a rest stop. It was not an apartment complex. Lot fully intended to live his life out in Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? This Greek word was used to refer to permanent residents of a town, as contrasted to the transients who lived there only for a time. Lot had put permanent roots down. Now, I want to remind you how he got Sodom and Gomorrah, how he got to Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that he and Abraham, Uncle Abe, had a falling out, and it was because both of them had increased so greatly. Both had become so wealthy that their herdsmen were fighting with each other and they were experiencing tremendous friction. So, Abraham, who had this incredible trust in the providence of God, providence meaning God is in charge of all things, he is the sovereign God, uh, he overrules the devil. He overrules the plans of men. He is the Lord of the universe. It is under his control and his charge. He is sovereign. And so when sovereign God moves according to his will, because Ephesians said that God works out all things after the counsel of his own will. Whether or not we pray for it, he works all things out after the counsel of his own will. Now, when sovereign God moves in his sovereignty, we call it the footsteps of providence. It means that, that God is just moving. And i got to tell you sometimes, so most of the time, we have no idea what God is doing. Providence leaves no footsteps. God is moving right now all over the earth in ways that we cannot even begin to know or comprehend and never will. The providence of God is working through the governments of men, the circumstances of life. The providence of God ordered your steps when you didn't know He was ordering your steps. The providence of God dropped ideas into your brain when you didn't know that it was from Him. The providence of God is bringing all of history down to the final moment of the culmination of His plan. History is His story. It's not man's story. It's not the devil's story. It's God's story. So we call it His story. history. Providence is the moving of God. All right? Now, boy, I took off on a tear there. <laughs> so, What I was wanting to tell you is this, Abraham said to Lot, he said, look at all the land in front of you. Look at it. Now, folks, they were in land that was just untouched by people. There was beautiful, lush land all around them. He says to his nephew, Lot, it should have been the other way around. Lot should have said to him, you're the leader, you're the man, you're the one that was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, not me. It ought to be you deciding where you want to go. But Abraham was being gracious and he was trusting his lot, no pun intended, to the providence of God. So he said, Lot, wherever you want to go, you just take it. Well, Lot cast his eyes on all the available land and his eyes fell on the lush Green, beautiful land comprising Sodom and Gomorrah. And because he liked what he saw, he chose that land, not caring for what the character of the people revealed. It's like, it's like picking a car in a car lot that you love and buying it before you realize how much it costs. So he said, I want that land And Abraham said, you take whatever you want. So Lot took all of his people, all of his family, all of his cattle, and he moved down to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how he got it. And Abraham lived in rougher terrain, rougher territory for years and years. He did not care. His basic attitude was this. I don't care what men choose or don't choose. I don't care what happens in normal circumstances. My God is sovereign. Where He wants me, He will put me. His providence will get me there. So I don't care what lot chooses. I trust God. I don't care where He goes. God is my sovereign God. I'm going to get what He wants me to have, and I'm going to go where He wants me to go, and I'm going to possess what He wants me to possess. And we've just got to be there ourselves. Haven't you just lately said, you know, Lord, whatever you want, I trust. And folks, do you know how much rest it brings into your spirit when you trust in the sovereignty of God, where finally you're delivered from feeling like if I don't name it and claim it and blab it and grab it, I'm not going to have it? When your theology goes above that And you get a glimpse of the sovereign God and you say, you know what? I just trust him. If I don't say it just right, do it just right, name it just right, claim it just right, I'm still going to get what he wants me to have because he's sovereign. And that just, that just delivers you from so much unnecessary stress. That's why Peter was sleeping in the jail. He hadn't taken an Excedrin PM. He hadn't popped a Valium. He hadn't had a glass or two of wine when he conked out. No. Peter had learned that he was sovereign. They so said, "Well, if they're going to kill me, nothing I can do about it. I'm going to sleep." And he was so asleep, an angel had to hit him with a sword and wake him up. Hey, I'm delivering you. You sure? And the church is over there praying. Yeah. God got him out when God, it wasn't his time yet. So I'm just trying to say, Abraham was beautiful in the way that he trusted the providence of God. It touches me. So go ahead, Lot. Go ahead, little nephew. Go ahead. And now here's Lot in the middle of hell, needing to be delivered by an angel, because the lust of the eye caused him to go somewhere where he shouldn't have gone and possessed something he shouldn't have possessed and he had to be delivered from it. You ever had to be, be delivered from something you thought you wanted? Isn't that strange when you got to beg for deliverance from something you thought you wanted? Isn't that strange? Well, I thought I wanted that. And if you knock long enough and push hard enough, God will let you have it. But then the day comes you're begging him to deliver you from it. <laughs> All right. Uh, seeing... Because it says, seeing and hearing. The word seeing is from a Greek word meaning a look, a glance. The person is looking from the outside in. He's not a a participant of the thing viewed. He's just looking. He's not participating. And that's what Lot was doing. He wasn't involved in their sin. He was just seeing it. Vexed in this verse is different from the word in verse 7. Same translated word, vexed, but it's a different Greek word. Instead of meaning to wear down or exhaust, here in verse 8, it means to torment or to torture. Now, listen carefully to me. What is called the active voice in the Greek uh, language is used here, and it would cause this to be translated this way, he vexed, distressed, his own righteous soul. Now... Let me explain this. It wasn't only the lifestyles of the ungodly that wore Lot down that vexed him, but he tortured himself, likely over his selfish decision in choosing the luscious green plains of the Twin Cities to permanently dwell in when Abraham had left the choice with him. As the old saying goes, he got what he wanted but didn't want what he got once he got it. So here's what he was doing. As he realized where he had taken himself and saw what he had planted his family in the midst of, he not only was vexed, worn down this way by the evil, but he was beating himself up for his decision. He was beating himself up for his decision. Ever done that? How many of you can beat yourself up better than 10 people could? That's what it's saying here. This second use of the word vexed means he's beating himself up. He's beating himself up. He's mad at himself. What have I done? What have I carried my family into? What have I done here? So let's read the translation. For in seeing and hearing the righteous one, having settled down permanently among them, day in, day out, tormented his righteous soul with their lawless works. Wow. Wow. That's why, boy, pray about every decision you make so that wherever you do land, you land in the will of God. Okay? Now let's read verse 9, can we? The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. He knows how. Do you believe that? You're tested tonight, you're tempted tonight the Lord knows how to deliver you out of it. And here Peter is saying, look what he did with Lot. Lot made a bad decision. Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah because of his own doing. He did it to himself. But God still knew how to deliver him. Hallelujah. So one commentator writes, the idea is primarily of those surroundings that try a man's fidelity and integrity and not of the inward inducement to sin arising from the desires. That's what the word temptations is talking about. This use of the word temptations in verse 9 he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations that word for temptation is talking about being surrounded by circumstances that try your fidelity and test your integrity it is not talking about what James told us that the temptation to sin comes from within you. That's not what it's talking about. This is talking about being in trying circumstances that want to wear you down, that want to test your integrity, that want to test your faith, and if you never do succumb to it, but keep walking in the Spirit, remaining in the Word, staying in prayer, and you come out of it, you come forth as gold, and it does what it was intended to do, which was to take you from here to here. All right? So he's telling us that that Lot found himself not inwardly, constantly tempted to do what they were doing, but he found himself vexed from the outside, and what he saw and heard constantly tested his integrity, tested his faith. And I think since the Bible calls him righteous lot when he gets delivered, it must be that he held true and God said to the angel, go get him out of there. Both Noah and Lot lived in the midst of mockers and unbelievers. How many of you know what it's like to live in the midst of mockers and unbelievers? People who make fun of your faith, who think you're one of those, who think you're a Jesus freak who think you flipped your lid, have lost your mind, are too straight and narrow, aren't enjoying life, aren't having any fun, have really stepped into a bad situation. How many of you know what that feels like? Listen, he's telling us right here, Noah and Lot were in the same thing. These two men were constantly mocked and ridiculed by the people living in sin that surrounded them. And it tried their integrity. And so, He says the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Temptation here is the atmosphere in which faith is brought to full development. Luke uses the same Greek word to describe the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And according to James, it is a joyous opportunity for the development of spiritual and moral strength. He makes all things work together for the good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. And the Bible says that if we successfully resist temptation, we receive a crown of glory that the Lord is going to give to us if we endure in the hour of temptation. So I don't know where you're at in your life. If you're in a situation that is vexing you, testing you, trying you, trying your integrity, testing your faith, God is watching it, and he's saying this. Stay true, and the day is going to come when you're going to pass through this. And when you do, something beautiful is going to have been worked in your soul. Praise God. Here's what James said. Can we read it together? Consider it wholly joyful, my brethren, whenever you are enveloped in or encounter trials of any sort or fall into various temptations. Same Greek word for temptations right there. Let's read verse 12 in James 1. Blessed, happy to be envied is the man who is patient under trial and stands up under temptation. For when he has stood the test and been approved, he will receive the victor's crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise tonight? (laughs) Amen. All right, let's read. Uh, oh, temptation becomes sin. This is really important. Only when it ceases to be in opposition to our will. When we're no longer opposing it and we give in to it, then it's sin. But here's what Peter is telling us and James. It is not a sin to be tempted. So, Pastor, I'm tempted to some terrible things. There is not a sin in being tempted. As long as you're opposing it, it's never a sin. Amen. Because sometimes the devil will try to tell you, boy, you are one wicked cat. Look at what you're tempted to do. You need to say, no, I'm not wicked. My flesh is being tempted and my old flesh can do anything if I yield to it. But you know what? I'm resisting it. So there is no sin in temptation. So let's read the translation, can we? The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of testing and temptation but to be reserving the unrighteous for the day of judgment under punishment. Let's go ahead and read verse 10. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. This is the last verse I'm going to deal with, and this is really power-packed. Let me just do this. Now, look what Peter's doing he's shifting gears. After discussing the sins of the sodomites, he now turns his focus to the sins of the libertines. Well, what are the libertines? This is real easy. In today's vernacular, we would call a libertine a hedonist. One who lives for sensual pleasure. You know, you think of the Hugh Hefner's of this world who have done everything in their power to totally popularize hedonism. You know, the thing about Hugh Hefner is he not only was one of the Um, door-opening pornographers in our country. But but Hugh Hefner was a very articulate man, and he wrote his hedonistic philosophy extensively in the early magazines. And I, I don't know about now, but I know the early magazines, he extensively taught this hedonistic philosophy. He mocked Christianity, mocked God's moral law, mocked the church, and said that really life was found in pursuing pleasure for pleasure's sake. And, um, you know, I think I mentioned this a few Wednesday nights ago, but Kathy and I were channel flipping one night and come across this old man in this limousine surrounded by these three high-IQed blondes. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm just kind of, I'm not making fun of sinners, but it was really rather ridiculous because, number one, you realize, oh, there's Hugh Hefner in his famous bathrobe which has to be just so gnarly by now. And here's these three ditzy blondes, and you know why they're there. They're there for the money. And they're helping him perpetuate this lying myth that the way to go is the way he went, the life of the hedonist. And of all the pornographers, you know, you could take Flint and you could take... Uh, guccione and some of these that had the really popular magazines that wrote a lot back in those days. He was the most articulate. Now, you look at the the final end of this guy. He, I don't know, what, 80? 80, 80 something? And he's trying to perpetuate still this image that, yeah, you know, I still got it. I got these blondes, and I'm still living the hedonistic lifestyle, and and uh this is the way to go, and I encourage all young men watching to follow me in this way. This was life. I really lived life the way it ought to be lived. And, of course, the media always willing accomplices to perpetuate anything ungodly. Don't ever question him with really tough questions. They just let him, I guess they're going to let him walk around in his his robe until he dies. And um, then I'll tell you, these three girls are going to, maybe shed a tear or two at a funeral, and they're going to be history, friend, gone. And he's going to be nothing but a fleeting memory. But the damage that he's done is incalculable with his hedonistic philosophy and his ability to articulate thoughts and teach what he believed. Now, I say that because as we get into this, I can't help but think of him and people like him and those who have followed his heresy. So keep that in mind as we, as we look at these people that, that Simon Peter is nailing in verse 10. Now, he says the word walk, of course, is to pre- proceed along a road, to go on a journey. It is addressing the way one orders his life. Now, I just want to show you verse 10 again quickly. He says, them that walk after the flesh. That's what we're talking about. So when we see the word walk, it means to proceed along a road, to go on a journey. It's addressing the way one orders his life. And I'm going to tell you the Bible is very clear. You either order your life to walk in the Spirit, or you order your life to walk in the flesh. And here's what Peter is saying. Now, the word after, to walk after the flesh. It means to run after something one lusts for. So the Hugh Hafners of this world and people who have followed that philosophy are chasing a fantasy, folks. A fantasy that they never really do obtain. And when he finally dies, he's not going to take the millions with him. He's not going to take the Playboy Mansion with him. He's not going to take all these others who have followed him with him. He chose the road of the flesh, and he's going to perish in that, according to the Word of God. So he ran after something he was lusting for, and it really was an unobtainable fantasy. Now, flesh in the Greek word is sarx, which is the totally depraved nature. The picture Peter is painting here is of these first century hedonists pursuing after the evil nature, eager to follow its impulses. And Paul warns about this lifestyle when he writes, "For if you live according to the dictates of the flesh, sarks, you will surely what everybody, die. preach it to me, say it again, die. die. If you follow the philosophy of the hedonist, you will die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you are habitually putting to death, making extinct deadening how do you do it folks by the power of the Holy Spirit you are how often habitually putting to death making extinct deadening the evil deeds prompted by the body you shall really and genuinely live forever so we all have a choice according to Simon Peter you can live like a hedonist and you will die a hedonist and you will die in your pursuit of the flesh Now look at uh, lust. Here's the word lust. It's the Greek word epithumia, epithumia, meaning passionate desire or a craving. One commentator describes epithumia as the vices, the foulness of which contaminates one in his relations with the ungodly mass of of mankind. So lust, Hugh Hefner style, after the flesh, is, is a is a lower nature craving that contaminates, it defiles, it destroys, it kills if you live according to those impulses. Anybody with me tonight? Say amen or oh me. So how many of you can say, I don't want to be contaminated by the flesh? I don't want to walk in a way that's going to kill me spiritually. Amen? Now, he says, and some, he says, let me tell you something else about these people. These false teachers, these hedonists, they despise government. The word despise is kata freneo, and it's made up of the first word, is, or the last word, freneo, is to feel, think, or have understanding. And kata means down. So, the word despise actually means to think a thing down. To think a thing down. Now, When I read that, i got to tell you, I think of our wonderful current news media who obviously despise authority and government. And they're constantly talking and thinking God's authority down. I'm not talking about a man. I'm talking about God's authority structures. They think those things down. We might say to look down our noses at a thing is to think little of something, to condemn, and to despise. Well, what do they think down? Well, it says government. But guess what? This word government does not mean government like Democrats and Republicans in Washington. Government is from a word meaning dominion, power, and lordship. It is used in the New Testament of one who possesses dominion. Peter is not referring to the government of a country here, but to the lordship of Christ. The hedonist, the one who lives for pleasure, who breaks against all godly barriers to pursue his lusts, guarantee you, guarantee you, you talk to somebody like that, and they have a loathing and a despising of Jesus Christ and his lordship And sometimes it's really hard to understand unless you get into the word and the word will tell you why they so despise him because they despise his lordship over their own lives. He says, they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Presumptuous is to not dread or shun something through fear. These hedonists possess no fear of divine authority at all. Self-willed means self-pleasing and arrogant. Afraid is to tremble or fear. Speak evil is blasphemio, They speak reproachfully. They revile the Lord Jesus Christ. Dignities is doxa, used to describe splendor, brightness, a most glorious condition used of the majesty of angels. In a nutshell, these hedonistic false teachers may have scoffed at the idea both of angelic hope or help, rather, and diabolic temptation. They they mocked the whole notion of we're in a battle between good and evil. They made light of the unseen, fostered an attitude of flippancy towards the concept of sin and goodness, reducing their followers' conduct, whose conduct? Their followers' conduct to hedonism with abandon, convincing them that pleasure is the sole or chief good in life. Let's stand and read the translation, can we? But especially those who proceed on their way, hot in pursuit of the flesh, in the sphere of the passionate desire of that which defiles, and who disdain authority, presumptuous, arrogant, they do not tremble when defaming those in exalted positions. Man. Well, this is the Word of God. Isn't it alive and powerful? How many of you can say tonight, we are in a battle with evil in this country? We're in a battle with evil. And it's our choice to walk either in the Spirit or in the flesh. If we're going to walk in the Spirit, then you've got to seek God every day. Feed on that Word every day. Make the decision to pick up your cross daily and follow Him. And God will keep you in the spirit, and he will keep you preserved. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your blessing tonight on the word. We thank you, Lord, for the clear teaching of Peter, his warnings, his encouragements. We thank you, Lord, that it's very clear to us what we see happens to false teachers and the ruin that can come to those who follow them. Help us, Lord, to be Wise in who we open our spirits to. Discerning in who we listen to. Careful in who we receive from. For Lord, we are the keepers of our own soul. That is, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, help us to be wise in this wicked world. In Jesus' name, amen.